Hello and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no clue how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. Last week, I discussed the importance of geography in history. This week, we're going to see it in action in two different unrelated stories with similar themes. Today also marks a listener request episode of Notes on History. Mark from New York has asked that I compare the story of Horatius Cocles at the Battle of the Sublican Bridge with the story of Changfei at Changban Bridge. An esoteric request like this could only come from an extraordinarily intelligent person, one with roguish good looks, I might add. So I should probably point out for transparency's sake that Mark from New York is indeed my identical twin brother. Mark teaches history in Webster, New York, and in past years, he has presented his students with this comparison. Since he has asked me to weigh in on the topic, I must assume that some of his students might be listening to this, and so I will refrain from the tawdry, inappropriate topics often found in history and stick to the tried-and-true, G-rated, family-friendly tales of people impaling each other on spears and gouging each other's eyes out. The first story I'm going to tell you comes from one of the most important pieces of literature of all time, and there's a good chance you've never heard of it. The San Kuo Chi Yan Yi, or The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, is one of the most important works in Chinese history. It is the subject of countless operas, books, daytime TV dramas, video games, etc. It has had a huge impact on Chinese history, and more importantly for us, it is based on Chinese history. It's a dramatized story of the fall of the Han Dynasty at the end of the 2nd century and beginning of the 3rd. In the story, three men... Uh, named Liu Pei, Quan Yu, and Chang Fei, swear brotherhood and promise to defend the dynasty from chaos and destruction. They're clearly the good guys in this uh, right from the moment they appear. Their chief opponent in this is a wily and charismatic warlord named Cao Cao, who has the distinction of being my very favorite villain in all history. He is just delightful. And if you happen to have access to the YouTube um uh, yeah, the YouTube, and watch the 2010 series Three Kingdoms. He is wonderful, wonderfully played by Chen Jianbin, uh, a fairly well-known Chinese actor. As the story progresses, Cao Cao comes to control the puppet emperor as he overcomes one regional power after another, and by the time of our story today, he has just fought and lost the enormous Battle of Red Cliff on the Yangtze River against our three heroes and their allies. However, Resistance is futile, and Cao Cao is now pursuing his quarry again. He has just captured Liu Pei's family, and is threatening to totally rout the freedom-fighting good guys. Chao Yun, one of Liu Pei's captains, has just fled from the enemy carrying Liu Pei's child. Cao Cao's man, Wen Pin, is right on his tail along with the rest of Cao's army when Chao Yun crosses the Changban Bridge, waved along by Chang Fei. If you do catch the, 20, uh, the 2010 series, this is in episode 36, and most of the action involves Chao Yun's journey, not Chang Fei's. However, it is Chang Fei's involvement which stresses the importance of geography, and so I'm going to follow the book. Let me quote directly from the story. And by the way, I'm quoting from the Browett, uh, the, uh, Browett Taylor translation. Uh, this is in chapter 42. Quote, Wen Pin and his company pursued Chao Yun till they saw Chang Fei's bristling mustache and fiercely glaring eyes before them. There he was seated on his battle steed, his hand grasping his terrible serpent-like spear, guarding the bridge. 
They also saw great clouds of dust rising above the trees and concluded they would fall into an ambush if they ventured across the bridge. So they stopped the pursuit, not daring to advance further. As they came up, they formed a line on the west side, halting till they could inform their lord of their position. As soon as the messengers arrived and Cao Cao heard about it, he mounted and rode to the bridge to see for himself. Chang Fei's fierce eyes, scanning the hinder position of the army opposite him, saw the silken umbrella, the axes and banners coming along, and concluded that Cao Cao came to see for himself how matters stood. So, in a mighty voice, he shouted, I am Chang Fei of Yan! Who dares fight with me? At the sound of this thunderous voice, a terrible quaking fear seized upon Cao, and he bade them take the umbrella away. Turning to his followers, he said, Quan Yu said that his brother Chang Fei was the sort of man to go through an army of a hundred legions and take the head of its commander-in-chief and do it easily. Now here is this terror in front of us, and we must be careful. As he finished speaking again, that terrible voice was heard, I am Chang Fei of Yen! Who dares fight with me? Cao, seeing his enemy so fierce and resolute, was too frightened to think of anything but retreat, and Chang Fei, seeing a, mo a movement going on in the rear, once again took his spear and roared, What mean you, cowards? You will not fight, nor do you run away! This roar had scarcely begun when one of Cao's staff reeled and fell from his horse, terror-stricken, paralyzed with fear. The panic touched Cao Cao and spread to his whole surroundings, and he and his staff galloped for their lives. Panic-stricken, Cao Cao galloped westward with the rest, thinking of nothing but getting away. Chang Fei saw the disorderly rout of the enemy, but dared not pursue. However, he bade his score or so of dust-raising followers to come help destroy the bridge. This done, he went to report to his brother and told him of the destruction of the bridge. Brave as you are, brother, and no one is braver, you are no strategist, said Lu Pei. What mean you, brother? Cao Cao is very deep. You are no match for him. The destruction of the bridge will bring him in pursuit. If you had left the bridge, he would have thought there was an ambush and would not have dared to pass it. Now the destruction of the bridge tells him we are weak and fearful, and he will pursue. He does not mind a broken bridge. His legions could fill up the biggest rivers that we could get across. That's the first story that concerns us. And I should point out that indeed, when he settled down, Cao Cao did in fact order a pontoon bridge to be built to cross the river so he could continue the pursuit. Now, set that story aside for a minute, and I'm going to tell you another tale, this time from the earliest days of the Roman Republic, some 700 years earlier and many thousands of miles away. So get ready to switch gears here in a major way. The Romans had gotten sick and tired of their kings. Remember the very first story I told you, the one about Romulus? He was the first of the kings of Rome. The seventh king, and as it happened, the last, was Tarquinius Superbus, or Tarquin the Proud. No question about it, this guy was a jerk, and his son was even worse. His son had been at the heart of a scandal that resulted in the ousting of the Tarquins from power and the replacement of the monarchy with the Republic, which is a really great story involving that principle of self-image that I love talking about, but we don't really need to get into that particular story here. Tarquin, the former king, was sort of like Tostig from the story I told you about the Norman conquest. He just didn't know when to leave well enough alone. And just like Tostig, he went looking for a sponsor, some other local warlord who could raise an army and reinstate him and in return earn the king's favor. He found the requisite chump in Lars Porsena of Clusium, a nearby city-state. 
Persena was an Etruscan, just like the Tarquins, which probably had something to do with both his alliance and with why the Romans had gotten sick and tired of their kings. The Etruscans came to attack Rome and met the Romans on the west end of the Sublican Bridge. By the way, there is still a bridge at about the same location. If you check out Google Maps and look at Rome, it's the second bridge to the south of that little island in the Tiber River. Anywho, the Romans knew that they had to stop the Etruscans from crossing that bridge. Let's turn to Livy, Book 2, Chapter 10, for a Paul Harvey-style rest of the story. On the appearance of the enemy, the country people fled into the city as best they could. The weak places in the defenses were occupied by military posts. Elsewhere, the walls and the Tiber were deemed sufficient protection. The enemy would have forced their way over the Sublican Bridge had it not been for one man, Horatius Cocles. The good fortune of Rome provided him as her bulwark on that memorable day. He happened to be on guard at the bridge when he saw the geniculum taken by a sudden assault and the enemy rushing down from it to the river, whilst his own men, a panic-struck mob, were deserting their posts and throwing away their arms. He reproached them, one after another, for their cowardice, tried to stop them, appealed to them in heaven's name to stand, declared that it was in vain for them to seek safety in flight whilst leaving the bridge open behind them. There would very soon be more of the enemy on the Palatine in the capital than there were on the Janiculum. So he shouted to them to break down the bridge by sword or fire, or by whatever means they could. He would meet the enemy's attack so far as one man could keep them at bay. He advanced to the head of the bridge. Amongst the fugitives, whose backs alone were visible to the enemy, he was conspicuous as he fronted them, armed for fight at close quarters. The enemy were astounded at his preternatural courage. Two men were kept by a sense of shame from deserting him, Spurius Lartius and Titus Herminius, both of them men of high birth and renowned courage. With them he sustained the first tempestuous shock and wild, confused onset, but for a brief interval. Then, whilst only a small portion of the bridge remained and those who were cutting it down called upon them to retire, he insisted upon these two retreating. Looking round with eyes dark with menace upon the Etruscan chiefs, he challenged them to single combat and reproached them all with being the slaves of tyrant kings, and whilst unmindful of their own liberty, coming to attack that of others. For some time they hesitated, each looking around upon the others to begin. At length shame roused them to action, and raising a shout they hurled their javelins from all sides on their solitary foe. He caught them on his outstretched shield, and with unshaken resolution kept his place on the bridge with firmly planted foot. They were just attempting to dislodge him by a charge when the crash of the broken bridge and the shout which the Romans raised at seeing the work completed stayed the attack by filling them with sudden panic. Then Cocles said, Tiberinus, holy father, I pray thee to receive into thy pro propitious stream these arms and this thy warrior. So, fully armed, he leaped into the Tiber, and though many missiles fell over him, he swam across in safety to his friends, an act of daring more, made more famous than credible with posterity. There you have it. By the way, nobody actually believes that Chang or Horatius had a stenographer handy to write down their every word in the middle of a battle. Those are clearly the words of an ambitious storyteller, probably the type of guy who once caught a fish this big. Now, let's talk about these two stories. What do they have in common? Well, first, obviously, the common theme of a battle at a bridge. This is a coincidence, of course, but it's an important one for our purposes. First, remember last week's episode on geography? 
Even with modern equipment, crossing a river with an army is quite a process. This makes bridges strategically important. Not only do they form bottlenecks where all sorts of fun tactics can be employed, but in the pre-modern age, they presented opportunities for heroism. Remember the story of Harold Hardrada at Stamford Bridge? The Heimskringla stated that he fought like a one-man army. Similar situation. The close quarters meant that in hand-to-hand -hand combat, only a few could fight at any given time. No flanking maneuvers, no getting behind the enemy's rear. The battle can be won by a few soldiers or even a single warrior with sufficient stamina. On the other hand, if the attackers succeed and the defenders turn to run, they could be cut down in no time flat and the defeat of a few men turns into the rout of an entire army. Now, for realism's sake, remember that neither Changfei nor Horatius Cocles were alone. They had a small group of companions. Chang companions, or Chang's companions, about 20 in number, were mentioned prior to the excerpt that I read. Another similar aspect of the story is the destruction of the bridge, the heroism of Horatius cutting off his help knowing he would have to stand alone. It's something like Cortez burning his ships. It forced each man to either commit to a heroic act or to die heroically. Not a bad choice if you want to be remembered well. One could argue that these two men were foolhardy. Read the entire Song Kuo Chi and Yi and you'll probably get the impression that Chang Fei could certainly be foolhardy at times. But when the stakes are as high as this, as high as they can be in situations involving bridge battles, foolhardiness can quickly become determined resolve. This geographical phenomena of a choke point lends itself to the heroism of few men. Large battles produce many heroes, but small engagements with profound consequences produce famous heroes. Chang Fei didn't need this engagement to be made famous. Horatius did. That's a point where the stories really do differ. Chang Fei is known for a great many deeds, but it is this story, and to the best of my knowledge, this story alone, that made Horatius a hero. There are some other key differences in the stories, and they tend to be the effects of the different cultures involved. Just go back and listen again to how the two stories read. Chang Fei's story sounds action-packed. It would make for a great reading in front of a group, and it's no coincidence that The Romance of the Three Kingdoms is performed six ways from Sunday on, on Chinese stages. The story about Horatius, on the other hand, is dry by comparison. I, re I read Titus Livius, the writer here, as being the kind of guy who would happily watch Downton Abbey while the author of The Three Kingdoms is more of a Michael Bay movie kind of guy. There are some other interesting details as well. For example, in the Roman example, the Etruscans would settle into a siege, and before long, Rome would be out of trouble again. That was a hallmark of early Roman war warfare. The back and forth just went on endlessly. Cao Cao, on the other hand, continued his advance once he realized there was no danger, uh, further danger. And I don't mean to ruin it for you, and this is a major spoiler alert, so I'll pause for a moment and give you a moment to hit the little skip ahead 10 seconds button if you need to. Do it now, because this is the point where I'm going to spoil it for you. But the good guys lose in the end in the Chinese version. But the similarities are enticing. Both stories emphasize qualities like heroism, personal sacrifice, daring, bravery, and the awe-inspiring personalities of the heroes involved. And that call to personality helps to answer the last part of Mark's question, which I don't think I mentioned earlier. Mark also asked why it is that these stories became so popular when they did. In the case of Horatius, this story became popular, or became most popular during the Principate era of Roman history, after the fall of the Republic. 
This was an era when Romans valued the strong leadership of individuals rather than the relatively chaotic ebbs and flows of true Roman republicanism. The fatal flaw of the Republic, and a major driving force in the transition from Republic uh, to Empire, had been that executive power in, power in Rome was dependent on the strong personalities of those wielding it. You may not realize it, but you know this instinctively. For example, don't if you're in a room full of people, don't do this, but think of this. Have you ever heard the name Caesar? I'm sure you have. Now, how many people listening to this have ever heard the name Galba? Case closed. Furthermore, the Romans always valued self-sacrifice for the benefit of the state. I mentioned that too in my discussion of Romulus. The reasons for the popularity of the Chinese story? Well, that's a little more complicated. As I said, Chang Fei didn't need this story to seal his reputation as a hero. The San Kuo is full of such stories. However, the San Kuo wasn't written until the 14th century, more than a millennium later, when China chafed under the rule of Mongolians. The stories found in the San Kuo became popular during this time because they reflected a dramatic time in Chinese history that inspired feelings of pride and, dare I say it, patriotism. But remember, spoiler, spoiler alert again, people, the good guys lost. Why would these stories be popular in the end? They emphasize the importance of standing up and doing the right thing regardless of the odds and regardless of your prospects of victory. Stories like Chang Fei at Changban Bridge, where the hero stands up to an oppressive villain, meant a lot to the Chinese of the 14th century, even if none of their oppressors were as wonderfully interesting as Cao Cao. Most importantly, what phrase should this all remind you of? You guessed it, self-image. There wasn't a Roman in the first century who didn't play Horatius as a kid. There wasn't a 14th century Chinese kid who didn't pretend to defend Liu Pei's army from atop a fallen log. These stories are cowboys and Indians, Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham, Buzz Lightyear and the Emperor Zurg. Of course, the kid who played Cao Cao must have had a lot of fun, but I bet the kid playing Lars Porsena was the one with the short stick. If you would like to read the full stories, the full text can be found easily online, as the most recent story is now some 700 years old. The story of Horatius comes from Livy's History of the City of Rome, Book 2, Chapter 10. The story of Chang Fei at Changban Bridge can be found in Chapter 42 of the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Once again, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to post to this site, or as always, you can email paul at notesonhistory.org. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.